All right, you may be seated if you have not already. Uh, this morning, we do have a very special guest with us this morning here at First Baptist Church. And uh, I've been excited to have him here. We've been hoping that this would happen. And so to have him here is really a joy uh, to many of us. And I know you're going to enjoy him as well. Uh, David Garrison is going to be our speaker today. David served with the International Mission Board, literally reaching some of the most unreached people of the world uh, for over 30 years. And so had his incredible background, but now currently serves as the executive director with an incredible organization called Global Gates Ministry. And so Global Gates seeks to seek those same unevangelized people groups that are all around the world that have now moved into global cities like San Francisco, New York, and others around the world, seeks to reach them with the gospel. And so he is leading a great organization that is doing incredible work. We have one of our own members, Caprice Applequist, who is reaching people here in the city of San Francisco with Global Gates. And so we are very excited to have David here to speak with us. Um, On top of all those things, if that was not enough, I just want you to know David is also a fellow fan of the Arkansas Razorbacks. And so that says a lot about his character, says a lot about his integrity, that he has perseverance just like I do. And so David... The Razorbacks are actually, I know all of you are wondering, they're playing today at 310 versus North Carolina Tar Heels. And so I hope you will pray for them, that you will cheer for them at 310 in light of everything you're going to hear today. But church family, would you welcome David Garrison this morning? Thank you, brother. Thank you, Ryan. This hope springs eternal. Those of us who are Razorback fans, the Cubbies, those Cubby fans and from Chicago have nothing on us. Uh, we're still waiting. We're still waiting in Arkansas. Uh, I live in Colorado now with my wife, Sonia. We lived, I think, 25 different places we counted one time by the time we'd reached our 30th anniversary. God has taken us on a wonderful adventure around the world. And in many respects, it began here. It's exciting to be back in the San Francisco Bay Area because... You know, as a young married couple, Sonia was 19 when we got married. And before you gasp and go, oh, my goodness, we were from Arkansas. People had been married and divorced twice (laughs) by by that that age. Uh, So at 19, I was 21. We went to a little Baptist school. And then we looked at where where we were going to spend our our, uh, seminary years. And we looked at the various options. And we could not imagine any more exciting or thrilling or challenging a place to come and do a seminary study than the San Francisco Bay Area. And we came out and God opened our eyes. We literally grew up here in this city. We got into the city every chance we got. And so to be back now after wandering all over the place uh, with the Great Commission under the Lord's leadership, it's thrilling to be back here. And I praise God for this church and for you being here, for God bringing you from wherever you've come from, whether it's to the other side of the city or right next door or the other side of the world, God's brought you here for a purpose. And that's what I want to talk to you about, uh, about the, this morning. I want to talk about, oh, church. Oh, First Baptist Church San Francisco. Oh, church, the body of Christ. Where are you going? Where are we going? I think as a young seminary student, this is the kind of question you ask because I knew that I wanted to go wherever God was going. I didn't want to go somewhere, launch into some ministry, whether it was exciting or not, if God wasn't in it. And so we came here. My wife, Sonia, was an advertising executive. She, uh, at, at, you know, in her early 20s, she had uh, First Nationwide Savings and Loan at the time was one of her clients. And uh, I know Orson Welles, you know Orson Welles, right? He, w- he worked for her. You know, she's 
24 years old, and Orson Welles did commercials for her. You know, the big cigar, First Nationwide Savings and Loan. He had that rich voice that everyone thought exuded wealth. Two years later, they found it, it exuded emphysema. He died of lung cancer. It's unfortunate. But in the meantime, that was kind of the world she moved in. And it was an exciting world. Lots of uh, influence and, and opportunities. Uh, her boss flew us uh, to, to Hawaii because he'd made so much money that year. He said, I need you to go and spend some money. Gave us his credit card, put us up. Went to three different islands. She'd fly to New York. She'd fly to, to Miami and stay at the Fontainebleau Hilton. And life was very, very uh, rich. And we thought, you know, we could do this the rest of our lives. This is a good life. He was Jewish, the owner of her, uh, of her advertising firm. It was named after him. When he learned that I was graduating, he says, I will give David a subsidy if he'll start a church here in the Bay Area. He wanted my wife to continue to work for him. But God had called us to missions. So we had to tell him that we were feeling led to go be Two-year missionaries in Hong Kong were removed into a 360-square-foot apartment on the 18th floor of a high-rise. And there was a little bit of a cultural adjustment going from, you know, the Fontainebleau Hilton in Four Seasons in New York to Wan Chai in Hong Kong. But let me tell you, over the next two years, we had the greatest adventure of our lives. In fact, when we came back to the United States, went to the University of Chicago, did a Ph.D. up there and. <clears throat> in history of Christianity, Sonia went back into advertising and it was the biggest letdown in the world. She said, how can you go from being a part of changing lives and seeing people's lives turned upside down for Jesus to going back and selling soap and selling sweetener and selling things like that? Now, some of you are there. You're saying, okay, I'm working in that business world. It's pretty exciting. I like it. But don't miss what God is doing and where God is moving because God is wanting to use all of us, not just those that go into the ministry, but those of us who have been saved and redeemed. It was for a purpose. And it didn't end when you walked down the aisle and said yes to Jesus. That was just the beginning. When I was in seminary, I asked the question, Lord, where is the body of Christ going? Where's the church going? And the verse that came uh, to the, the forefront of my attention was Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The final words of Jesus to us, to the church, spoken 2,000 years ago. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power. And you will be my witnesses. Witnesses of me and of the life and the relationship that we have. And here's where you're going to do it. You're going to do it in Jerusalem, which is where they were at the time. You're going to do it in Judea, which is the surrounding area. You're going to do it in Samaria, which was among those people that we didn't feel comfortable with. Those people that maybe were racially or historically or culturally at odds with us. He said, you're going to be my witness there too. And you're going to be my witness to the ends of the earth. Where in the world is the ends of the earth? Well, I'm convinced that Jesus was not talking about a geographical place. He was really talking about a theological place. Now, let me, let me submit this case to you. Jesus had already been to Jerusalem. In fact, he was there when he made this pronouncement. He had been to Judea. His ministry began in the Judean wilderness where he was baptized by John the Baptist. He had gone through Samaria and started a movement in Samaria through the Samaritan woman who went back and our friends began coming to Christ. The ends of the earth was the place he had not yet been. 
It was that part of the world that had never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Called the ends of the earth, Jesus defined it. At the time that he said it, it was 99.9% of the earth's population. And his disciples took that seriously. When Jesus said, we're going to the ends of the earth, they set out. And those who didn't set out, there was a persecution and they were thrown out. They were scattered out like like flashes of light all across the ends of the earth. We've got a, um, a map here to come up. Yeah, this is the area of the world. If you can see in this map, this was done by the International Mission Board in cooperation with Wycliffe Bible Translators, Campus Crusade, Youth with a Mission, and a dozen other agencies in what they call the Harvest Information System, HIS. See what they did there? HIS Network. And they compiled information of where do people have access to the gospel? Where do they have the Bible in their own language? Where do they have some churches? Where do they have missionaries? And they color-coded it. And this, you could look sort of orange here. It's actually red on the original map. But those dark orange places were the parts of the world that we would define today as the ends of the earth. The unevangelized, least reached parts of the world. When I saw this as a seminary student, I said, if that's where Jesus said we're going, I'm going, to, I'm going there on a beeline. So we went first to Hong Kong as a gateway into China. Later, we moved to North Africa, working with Libyan Arabs. We studied Arabic in Egypt, moved to Tunisia, immersed ourselves in Arabic there, reaching out to Libyans. A few years later, 10 years later, we found ourselves living in India, where I directed Southern Baptist work in South Asia for the next eight years. South Asia, as you can see on this map, is kind of the greatest concentration of lostness on the planet. It's also the beginning place of Baptist missions. It's where William Carey went. In fact, today there are thousands and thousands of Baptist churches in India as a result of great missionaries who have gone before us. But there's still so many corners and so many language groups and castes within India that have yet to hear for the first time. God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. That's the ends of the earth. Now, I spent the last really about 31 years engaged at the ends of the earth, involved in mission work from one corner of the, uh, of the 1040 window, it's been called, or the ends of the earth to the other. It's called the 1040 window because 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator is where 90% of the world's ends of the earth people groups reside. So we started focusing on that. We spent a lot of our time. I I studied 12 different languages over the course of those 31 years. Uh, You'll notice I very carefully parsed my words here. did not say I learned 12 languages. I learned how to say I'm sorry I don't understand in 12 languages. Um, But it would begin a conversation, and we we came up to speed in several of those. Um, Now, the interesting thing is when I came back to America... I found that things were changing. They were changing in America, and they were also changing overseas. I got a phone call one day from an executive vice president of one of the largest, fastest-growing mission organizations in the world today. It's called Pioneers. And uh, this executive VP calls me up. He said, David, he said, we're hearing reports of movements of Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'd worked with Muslims. I lived in North Africa. My wife and I spoke uh, Arabic. And I learned hundreds of ways not to win Muslims to Christ. And we tried pushing every button we knew, and they just weren't coming to faith in Jesus. But in the time since I moved to India, we moved to India in 2003. 
we started running into Muslims who were people from a Muslim background who were now worshipers of Jesus, who loved Jesus with all their heart. In fact, I was in my office one day uh, in Bangalore, India. I looked at the photocopy machine, and there were these guys out there photocopying from little books and brochures and tracts. And I asked my friend, I said, who are these guys? I don't recognize them. She said, oh, they're a couple of the Bengali Muslim background believers. They're evangelists. And what they do is they photocopy portions of the New Testament in their language. And uh, they take Jesus films on DVDs and they go out to the mosques and they distribute them. So they've targeted every mosque in Bangalore, a hundred mosques. And so far they've started several churches. I said, wow, that sounds kind of dangerous. He said, oh yeah, they get beat up on a regular basis. I said, my goodness. I said, when these guys finish, before they leave, would you ask them to come in? I want to pray with them and pray for them. And I said, what are their names, by the way? And my friend said, well, the one on the left, his name is Muhammad. The one on the right, his name is Islam. I thought, yeah, this is what we were missing in North Africa. We needed Muhammad's and Islam's distributing Jesus films and New Testaments at the mosque. I could tell this was in 2003, 2004, something was changing. So when my friend just about five years ago, Ted from Pioneers called me and says, David, we're getting these reports of amazing movements. Would you go and investigate? I said, yeah, it's been on my list of things to do. I spent the next three years traveling a quarter of a million miles throughout the Muslim world, visiting movements in every corner, ended, ended up traveling 250,000 miles over the next three years. I thought I would gather, I, was, I told people this in the Sunday school hour, my plan was to, to, to visit 12 sites, 12 countries. I had 12 questions. I was going to ask 12 Muslims in each movement. I was going to write a book with 12 chapters. I was going to sell 12 million copies. It just seemed so perfect. You know, God has a way of letting us delude ourselves to, get, to put us to work. I got involved, ended up spending three years, ended up traveling and visiting 44 different movements. Got over a thousand interviews. Each one, the question I asked him was, what did God use to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ? Tell me your story. We heard stories of dreams, stories of visions, stories of answered prayers, stories of miracles, stories of how for the first time in their life they got an opportunity to know that Jesus was more than just a prophet. What we came out with, I I produced in a little book called A Wind in the House of Islam, How God is at Work in the Muslim World Today. What we discovered was that something was happening that was far beyond anything we could imagine. Now, I've got a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, and that should impress you. Uh, Ph.D., of course, stands for Piled High and Deep. And it means that I, if I was going to write and say something was really special and historically significant, I would have other PhDs who would take aim at me and say, oh, you better be able to prove what you're saying. So I was very nervous and I went back and I checked to see if in fact what's happening today in the Muslim world really is as unusual as I thought. I went back to the beginning of Islam. Islam began in the year 622. I wanted to know when in history has there ever been a movement of Muslims to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let me pause here for a moment. Let's put in brackets. What is a movement? Well, I see this brother. He just moved a little bit. There's a movement right there. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just someone saying yes to Jesus. 
In this case, we wanted to define it clearly and without any ambiguity so that whenever we say there's a movement of Muslims to Christ, you'll know what we're talking about. Here's our definition. You ready? We're defining a movement as at least a thousand Muslims in a community, in a given community. They share the same language, culture. A thousand of them have said yes to Jesus. No, that's not enough. In fact, if we had a room full of Muslims today and I said, how many of you love Jesus? Every hand would go up. We're not talking about that. They have not only said yes to Jesus, they've been baptized as a symbol of their willingness to die to an old life and rise to a new life. Now, for a Muslim, that means even more than it does to you and me. For you and me, it meant a wonderful transition from lostness to salvation. It was a picture of what God had done in our life. For Muslims, it means I will die for this. Because in Islam, to be baptized is a capital offense. So when we saw a thousand Muslims in a community who've been baptized, and here's the time frame, in 20 years or less, it's happened. So in other words, if you have a baptism every year for a thousand years, that's not a movement. That's a slow trickle. We're talking about something that's happened in, in a year, in five years, in 10 years, or at the most 20 years. Whenever that's happened, we said that's a movement. We wanted to see when in history has that ever happened. Let's pop up the next, uh, next slide and I'll show you what we found. This was our bar chart. Can you see this okay? Let me, let me explain it to you in case you can't. Starting on the left side over here, that's the 7th century. That's when Islam began, the year 622. We looked into every, every corner of Christendom. There's history books that whenever a Muslim movement happened, they documented it. In the 7th century, no movements. 8th century, 9th century, zero movements anywhere in the world of any denomination. Not even heresies were seeing movements of Muslims coming to Christ. At the same time, tens of thousands of Christians were becoming Muslim. This was the expansion of Islam across the Christian world. Not until the 10th century do we get one movement. It takes place near the Turkey-Syria border. 12,000 Arab Muslim men, presumably with their families, were baptized into Christianity. The 13th, uh, the 10th century, the 11th and 12th century, no movements anywhere. The 13th century, two movements. One takes place in what today would be southern Lebanon. The other one takes place in what today would be Libya. The first one, over 1,000 were baptized. The second one, 6,400 were baptized. So we now have three movements in history. And now we go into the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, 500 years without any movements of Muslims anywhere on earth. In fact, it was during this time that Christianity, which was well established in Central Asia, was sweeping across into China through the Nestorians. It was completely destroyed by Muslims under Tamerlane. Tamerlane wiped out 5% of the earth's population and with it eradicated Christianity in Central Asia. So Christianity, even though the European conquerors were spreading around the world, they were tiptoeing around Muslims, no movements. Until the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, two movements take place. One in Indonesia, 10 to 20,000 Indonesian Muslims are baptized through the ministry of Sadrach Surpranata. The other one takes place way over in northern Ethiopia. An Islamic sheikh named Sheikh Zacharias has dreams and visions about Jesus. What was unusual was he was able to get a New Testament that had just been translated into his heart language. He read the New Testament to see who these dreams and visions were about. 
History tells us Sheikh Zacharias discovered two things. He discovered, number one, that he loved Jesus. Jesus, as revealed in the New Testament, was a very special person, very different than what he'd read in the Quran. The second thing he discovered was that Jesus was God's only way of salvation. And Sheikh Zacharias was so excited about this, he went back to his friends and started preaching the gospel. And before they threw him out of the mosque, he had led 7,000 Muslims to faith and baptism. Now, the cool thing about this is they're still in the churches today. You can go back and find them. You know where they are. They talk about their grandparents and great-grandparents who came to Christ under these ministries. Now we go in the 20th century, and you see what happened in the 20th century at the very end of it. Not until the last 35 years do we have any movements. Places like Indonesia, Algeria, Iran, Bangladesh, Central Asia. We have 11 Muslim movements to Christ unprecedented, more than we'd seen in the entire history of Muslim-Christian interaction. But take a look at the 21st century. This is our century. My book, when I did my research, I finished it. I sent it off to the press the end of 2012. So in a way, this really isn't fair. There's 69 movements took place in just the first 12 years of the 21st century. I don't know if you know what that means, but quite frankly, it means we're living in the midst of the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in history. How many of you knew that? One. Thank you, sister. Find out why later. You know, how many, you didn't see this on CNN? Big story. You didn't catch it on Fox News? Maybe you're watching the wrong one. Maybe you should have been watching. It's not on any of them, is it? All the news we're getting are all the horrors, all the terrors, all the atrocities, all the killing, all the slaughter, all the immigrants and refugees. I'm not saying those things aren't true. Don't get me wrong. I'm not here to bash cable news. I'm just saying there is another story. There is another story. And it's always that way, isn't it? There's human history, which is our perspective on what's happened. And then there's something called salvation history, which is God's perspective on what's happening. That's what's going on in the Muslim world today. The Bible told us it would happen. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, judgment, and righteousness. That's what we're finding. Dreams, visions, uh, broken lives, people dissatisfied, looking at the violence around them. Many Muslims are saying, this cannot be God's perfect will. A hundred years ago, Or a thousand years ago, if they'd come to that conclusion, they would have had no choices. Today, they can turn to the Internet. They can pop open Skype. They can uh, download the Jesus film. They can find people, relatives who are working in Silicon Valley. And through those relationships, they can see alternatives. And that's what's happening. We're living in a day of new possibilities. And I think that's one of the exciting things that happened. As I came back to America, I realized that all of these things I had invested my life in at the ends of the earth, God had now brought them here to America, to global gateway cities here. And San Francisco, in many ways, is way ahead of it. Remember when those Vietnamese boat people, just as our missionaries were getting kicked out of Vietnam and they could no longer take the gospel into that war-torn country, here were all of these people from Vietnam coming to the Golden Gate, looking for a new life, a new land, a new hope, the immigrant song. What was different then, though, that was in the early 1980s. When they came over here, they sort of burned their bridges behind them. 
They were here as refugees. They couldn't connect. Today, when immigrants come into America, the first thing they do is they're getting their bags cleared through customs. They open up their cell phone and call back home. We made it. We made it. As soon as we get checked into an apartment somewhere, we will send you pictures. And then we want you to come and visit in a week or two. The difference today is that there's a connection between these communities and the lands from which they come. There's a connection. God has brought the ends of the earth to us. God has brought the ends of the earth to us. Global Gates is our ministry that's recognizing that not only are they here, this is not a refugee or an immigrant ministry. It's an ends of the earth ministry that happens to be located in Global Gateway cities. I was amazed. I went to Afghanistan uh, probably 2007, my first time into Afghanistan. We've had hostage crises there. I mean, spent six months of my life trying to get hostages out of Afghanistan. We've had uh, my, my secretary, dear friend and sister, was murdered in Kandahar, Afghanistan. was beheaded for taking the gospel and starting a girls' school there. Tough place. When I landed around 2007, they just had the first IED, this uh, explosive device that they come up with. They'd had the first one in Afghanistan. They had learned a best practice from Iraq and brought one in to blow up Americans in Afghanistan. It was a tough place. Missionaries there were under siege. They lived always wondering where the next sniper would be shooting from. Now, fast forward in 2017, 10 years later, in January, just a couple of months ago, I go down to Fremont, California. And I walk into an area they call Little Kabul. And everyone I'm meeting there are Afghans. And they love the fact that they're in America because they love America and they love Americans. And we're able to openly share the gospel with them. And I realize something has changed. God has brought the ends of the earth to us. Let's go to the next slide. The U.S. today is now home to more than 3 million Muslims. And according to the Pew Forum, the Pew Study, Pew Research Forum, uh, they believe that number is going to double in the next uh, two decades. Now, that's even with the sanctions and the embargo on uh, immigrants or the, the restrictions on immigrants that we're seeing. Metropolitan New York City, for example, is currently home to more than a million Muslims. Uh, 23% of all the Muslims now in the United States are in New York City proper. God's brought them here for a reason. We looked at New York City and we just said, let's, let's find out who's here and where they're located. And let's see if we can plant churches among them, if we can share the gospel, if we can partner with them to take the gospel to the other side of the world. This uh, next slide shows you just some of the different ethnic groups that we found in New York City. Now, I show you this because I think they're here in San Francisco too. We just need local champions here who will say, I'll find out what's going on. We'll start gospel lights and gospel outreach in each of the communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's what's beginning to happen in New York, in Houston, in Dallas-Fort Worth, Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, Los Angeles. I was down in Los Angeles also in January of this year. I was visiting with an Armenian, Armenian Christian, evangelical, Assembly of God background. He had, he had escaped from Iran, and he was now living in an apartment in, uh, in the greater Los Angeles area. While we were sitting there having tea with him, there was a knock at the door. He opened it, and here was an Iranian Muslim background follower of Jesus. 
he brought with him his friend, lovely young woman with a Ph.D. in nutrition from Iran. She was studying, doing postdoctoral studies in the L.A. area. And she had come with her Muslim background friend because she too wanted to be a follower of Jesus. We sat down there on the couch and my Armenian friend started telling her, making sure she understood the gospel. And then he turned to me and said, David, tell her what baptism means. And I talked about dying to an old way of life, rising with Jesus to new life because Jesus died for our sins and gives us his righteousness. And she said, that's what I want in my life. We went out that very afternoon out to the little swimming pool there in the uh, in the uh, the plaza in the middle of the apartment complex. And there was a kiddie pool, a little kiddie pool. And it's the perfect place to do baptisms. And she was baptized right there, confessing Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He is my Lord and he is my God. And she was baptized. And my Armenian friend turned to me and says, David, she's the 850th Muslim from Iran that I've baptized. God is doing something here, something in our day, something amazing. And he's opening up gateways to the very ends of the earth. I was in, um, in uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, two years ago in, in, in uh, June. My wife and I went over. I was speaking about Muslim movements to Christ and a wind in the house of Islam. It was fun to go to Northern Ireland because my mother's side of the family is from there, like eight generations back. And so I went there and I said, yeah, my mother was a Moor. They go, oh, the mirrors. We know the mirrors. They come from the mountain of Morn right over there. And they pointed to it. And these people came out of the woodwork saying, oh, you're one of us. I can tell. I see the Irish in your skin. One of the cool things we did, though, we drove around uh, uh, Belfast. And our tour guide, he mumbled all this stuff in Irish that we couldn't understand. Occasionally, he would say things over there. He said, that's where they built the Titanic. Star ferry lines, you know, this is star uh, shipbuilding lines. That's where they built the Titanic. And then he mumbled, he said, it was fine when it left here. (laughs) (laughs) Then he took us over to the house where C.S. Lewis had grown up and took us where he'd gone to school. And out in front of the library, they've constructed a a bronze monument, a big life-size monument of, of a man uh, sitting, uh, well, there's, a, there's a, a park bench there that you can sit on. And behind it, there's a wardrobe with an open door and a man opening the door, looking inside. And of course, you know the story of how the, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is the children pass through that wardrobe into another world. They step into Narnia. There's wardrobes all over San Francisco in the Bay Area, in New York City, that literally when you walk into them, you step into Mogadishu, Somalia, or you step into Kabul, Afghanistan, or Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And God is opening those doors, just like Jesus said in Revelation, see, I set before you an open door that no one can close. And he's calling on us to go through those doors because through them, we literally are transported to villages and towns and communities in war-torn, harsh, difficult places where we can never go as missionaries because we're not allowed. But through those gateways, through those relationships, we can take the gospel back. I want to tell you the story about the founder of Global Gates. It wasn't me. A guy named Chris Clayman. I was just blessed to be a part of this group. I praise God to be associated with these wonderful young missionaries. A guy named Chris Clayman from Texas, a tall, lanky, 
Texan, good-natured, friendly guy. I went to Hardin-Simmons, spent a year studying at Cambridge University in, in England. Bright fellow. When he finished college, he went to be a two-year missionary to West Africa. And basically, when you're a two-year missionary, like I'm, my wife and I went to Hong Kong, he went to West Africa. He said, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. They said, why don't you start by learning this trade language, the Bambara language. It's spoken all up and down by various tribal groups. So he learned Bambara. He just lived in the community, immersed himself in it, just dreamed, began dreaming in Bambara. Young brains can do that. These old brains, they turn to sawdust. So I'm jealous of the fact that he could do that. But when he did, they said... They said, there's a people group up here called the Wasulu people. As far as we know, there's never been a Christian of any kind. There's never been any churches. They're all solidly Muslim. Would you be willing to go and live among the Wasulu and tell them about Jesus? And Chris, his name's Chris Clayman, said, man, I'm all about that. He went and moved in with the Wasulu. He ate their food. He drank their water. He lived in a hut with them. And he would, throughout the day, tell them stories from creation to Christ. He was amazed at how open they were, how receptive they were to hearing the good news of Jesus from this white Texan. And then it happened. Chris started getting sick, shakes, fever, the diarrhea, the vomiting, the stomach cramps. He got medical attention, but it got worse and worse. He ended up in the hospital. They were giving him all sorts of infusions of, of glucose and things to try to keep him alive. He nearly died. They said, you've gotten... Uh, malaria, but it's gone beyond malaria. It's attacking your organs. They medevaced him out, got him back to the United States. Chris was skinny anyway. He was losing weight fast. His organs were shutting down. He almost died. Spent a year getting his health back. Miraculously, through good doctors and wonderful treatment, he was able to get his strength back. He overcame. And as soon as he did, he went straight back to Mali, West Africa. Now, if you don't know anything about this, you go to Timbuktu in Mali, and then it's beyond that. That's where the Wasulu are. So he moves, goes straight back to that village. He was there for about a month when it started happening again. The shakes, the fever, the vomiting, the cramps. And they medevaced him out once again, afraid he would die. And they said, Chris, you can't ever go back to West Africa. And he was crushed. This was God's calling. This was his dream. He had started a relationship when he came back with a, a young woman, a lovely young woman named Nicole, who also had a calling to be a missionary to Muslims in West Africa. They married. They started a family. He got his seminary education. All the while saying, Lord, what is your purpose in this? What, what do you want me to do about this? Why have you not released me from this calling? One day he gets a phone call from some folks who were in New York City. They said, Chris, there's an awful lot of West African Muslims in Harlem. Why don't you come on up here? See what you see. Chris and Nicole goes up. They had their little baby. Nicole was pregnant with her second child. They started wandering around Harlem, finding all of these West African restaurants and, 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 and cafes and grocery stores. And Chris starts speaking Bambara to them. And they go, oh, our long lost brother. Where are you from? Where have you been? Your mother was clearly white. You know, <laughs> They took him in the cultural centers. They embraced him. Very gracious, typical West African people. And uh, when Chris told them a little bit of his story, they said, there's someone you must meet. Wait here. And they went away for a few minutes. They came back with a man. And they said, he's a Wasulu. Chris looked at him. He said, what are you doing here? 
The man looked at Chris and he says, let me tell you my story. He said, 23 years ago, I was in a little village. He named the village and Chris knew where it was. He said, I started having dreams and visions about Jesus, Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. And because I had the same dreams, they kept saying to me, put your trust in me and I will save you. I finally did. I gave my life to Jesus. And the next day I told my family and they said, you must never tell anyone this. This is a curse on us. But I couldn't help it. I had to tell everyone. And they threw me out of my village and out of my family. They cursed me and I ended up in the capital city, wandering around the city, begging, living as a beggar. He said, I was there for several years and never saw my family. I barely survived. One day, my family sent some people from our my cousins to come and visit me. And they treated me so kind. They took me out to dinner. And I thought, this is good. It's the beginning of a renewal of relationship. And they fed me a wonderful meal until I realized they had poisoned me. I was unconscious. Some Christian friends found me. They helped me recover. And they said, they're going to do this again. You must leave here and never come back. They helped me get a visa to go to New York City. He said, all that happened 23 years ago. And this Wasulu man in Harlem looked at Chris and he says, for 23 years I've been praying for God to send someone to help me reach my people. He said, you're the answer to that prayer. <laughs> Chris looked at his pregnant wife, little toddler, and said, what could we do? We moved into Harlem. Moved into a five-story walk-up. This was about 10 years ago. Today, there's over 100 Wasulu who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've started several house churches here in America. But the neat thing is this. Through the relationships here, they've been able to go back to Mali, West Africa. They found homes opened up to them in ways that missionaries never experience over there. But because of relationships with these Wasulu immigrants to America... They've been welcomed into homes and they started the first ever Wasulu church in history. I'm convinced that what happened with Chris's experience with Global Gates is happening and potentially happening here as well. Let's go to the next slide. What's going on in the Bay Area? 36% of San Francisco's residents are not from here. They're from somewhere on the other side of the world. And unlike 20, 30 years ago, they're staying connected to the other side of the world. Let's go to the next one. 60,000 American-friendly Afghan Muslims waiting for someone to tell them about Jesus. And when you tell them, they will tell their families on the other side of the world. Next. Over 100,000 Punjabi Muslims and Sikhs. The Sikhs, the, the men wear the turbans and have the long beards. Some of the most delightful, engaging open people you'll ever want to know. Next, thousands of mainland Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laotians, God has brought to our shores. Next, reaching the ends of the earth through Global Gateway Cities. This is what Global Gates is trying to do, but we cannot do it without you. This is not something that God has outsourced to missionaries. It's something he's given to the church. I can't help but believe that San Francisco and First Baptist Church of San Francisco may be one of the most strategic communities of faith on the planet because you are in the midst of more wardrobes to the ends of the earth than any other place, perhaps in the world. 
The question is, will you go through that door? Let's pray together. Holy Father, I pray this morning that my brothers and sisters would realize that they're not here by accident and it's not about them. They're here for your purposes. They're here because there's a lost world that needs to know Jesus and this very place may be the gateway to unreached people groups who will never hear about Jesus unless we open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to what you're doing, what you want to do with us through the unreached peoples you brought to the San Francisco Bay Area. Father, we want to pray for Muslims. Even now, our heart cries out, break their hearts. Give them dreams and visions. Give them a hunger that only Jesus can fill. And Father, we want to be there to be able to Give a reason for the hope within us. So I pray, Father, that you would speak through us to them, that we would have relationships and the opportunity to be able to share the good news of Jesus with them. Father, our prayer is nothing short of the fulfillment of your great commission. And by your grace and mercy, we pray that you would use us and allow us to be a part of the fulfillment of that great commission. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.